good morning. I'm excited to look at God's word with you. We're going to be in Romans chapter 12. Seems like most of us made it back from spring break. Those of us that get a spring break, no one ever t- tells you when you're in a kid that spring break, you don't get that all the time. Uh, so shout out to you that wish you had a spring break. Uh, but it seems like we, we made it back and and you know, the Monday after spring break can be one of the most depressing times for a kid. And so I, I tell my kids, look, after spring break, we are, we are making a beeline to summer. You know, we are, that's like the last major thing before we can get to, get to summer there. Um, and so, man, one of, the, one of my favorite times, favorite seasons around here at the church is summertime. And one of my favorite things about summer is youth camp. And we go this, uh, we go to Camp Zephyr is where we go every summer. Our students go there. And Alan and I have actually served on the youth camp planning team for 10, 10 plus years where we've planned youth camp for, for Camp Zephyr. And, and man, we, we have a great time planning and we have a great time every single summer out there. Now, if you ask me, well, what's your favorite part of youth camp? Like, if you think of the whole week, what's your favorite part? My answer would be uh, free time. Now, I realize I realize that that sounds like whenever I ask my son, like, what's your favorite subject in school? And he says, lunch. I realize that's what sound, that sounds like. But here's why I like free time. And if you're not aware, uh, at camp, there's, a, there's an afternoon. You get a few hours to do whatever you want. And uh, I love free time because kids can lean into the things that they love. Um, and also they can try things that maybe they've never tried before. And so there's a good mix there. Uh, you know, there, we have, uh, you know, there's a pool and there's a, a pond where you can do some different things. And there's a, there's a lakefront and there's paintball. Uh, there's tournaments, basketball, volleyball, dodgeball, tournament. Adults can't play the tournaments because every time there's a bad, uh, bad thing that happens in a tournament, it's always the adults that are too competitive, so they can't play in the tournaments. Uh, but then uh, there's one other thing. There's, there's the ropes course. Now, if you don't know what a ropes course is, let me... Uh, let me explain this to you. The goal of the ropes course is for you to experience the zip line. So you're on this, line, this zip line and you jump. And you just kind of go down this zip line and you come back. And that's the thrill of the moment. That's, what you're, that's the goal of the ropes course. But that zip line is attached to this tower that, I don't know, it's probably 25 feet in the air. To me, it looks like it's like 150 feet in the air. Uh, to get... To the tower, you have uh, one of three options. You can climb this rope ladder thing, you can uh, climb up this rock wall, uh, or you can climb up a telephone pole, and then when you get to the top, there's these two wires. You stand on one, you hold the other one, and you have to kind of make your way across. Now, if you're not aware of what a ropes course is, you're probably thinking, that is the most dangerous thing I've ever heard in my life. How are you going to let teenagers climb 25 feet in the air just to do a zip line That seems unsafe. Well, most of you are actually probably aware that that you can't can't fall. You you actually, you can't get hurt. It looks dangerous, but it isn't. Because what happens is, as you are climbing and doing all of the things on the ropes course, you have a harness on, and there's a rope that's attached to that harness, and it's hooked through some things and comes down to the ground where you have a Zephyr staffer, somebody who's been trained to deal with the ropes course, and they're holding the bottom of the rope. So if you do slip and you do fall, they got you. You're not going anywhere. And you'll be dangling there, and they'll have to lower you down, and then you can start over, but, but they got you. 
I, I love free time. I, I love the idea of the ropes course because it creates a safe environment for kids to take risks and experience the thrill of a zip line. See, at camp, what, we're, what we do is we cultivate a safe place for kids to be courageous. Now, we've been in a series over the last uh, couple of weeks, several weeks, where we're looking at the values of Central, the values of our church, top seven, the, the way, they're like the lenses that we view the world and, and our task as a church in the world. It, it's like the heartbeat, this is who we are, these these values, and we've talked about how we have a scripture foundation, and we are biblically based, and everything we want, everything we do uh, needs to be informed by the scriptures. Uh, we fight for the hearts of the next generation, that we aren't just about behavior modification in the next generation, but we want to fight for their hearts, that they love and follow after Jesus, and will continue to love and follow after Jesus. We, we want to embrace our mission field. We believe that everybody has a mission. Your mission might be on the other side of the world, or your mission might be on the other side of the street or within the four walls of your home. But everybody has a mission, and we want to embrace it. We believe that we are better together, that no one was meant to live the Christian life alone, but we were meant to live the Christian life together in community with other believers, and that makes us better. And last week, we talked about how we want to be a people who are generous in all things, Everything that we have belongs to God, our time, talent, treasure. It's all been given to us by God, and we, we want to give it back to him in a way, we want to use it to serve him in a way that is pleasing to him. And we want to be generous in all things. Well, the value that we're looking at today is safe places. Safe places. We create safe physical, spiritual, and emotional places so people can come as they are. There's kind of two ways to look at this value. Uh, we we want to create safe physical places. That is, we, we want this church facility and the programs that we offer to be a place that, that you want to be, that you feel safe and comfortable, you want to be here. So, so for example, we, we take our responsibility with our uh, preschool kids and teenagers, we take that very seriously. And we protect them with, with appropriate building access. We don't just let anybody get back there. You have to have a sticker. Background checks with all of our volunteers and our staff members and, and accountability and there's oversight. We, we protect our kids. And that is important to us. We, we have a ministry at our church called the Safety Team. And our safety team, it's made up of all kinds of people. We do have some first responders on that team, but we also have some men and women who, who have a heart for that kind of service, and they're our eyes and ears. They, they are protecting us. They are looking out for any potential danger. They also provide medical assistance if someone were to injure themselves or become ill. We have this safety team that's looking after us and making sure this is as safe a place as you can possibly be. So we create safe physical places, but that's not all we mean when we talk about safe places. We, we actually mean more than that. We want to create safe physical places, but we also want to create safe spiritual and emotional places, not only a place you want to be, but a people you want to belong to. You know, just like youth camp tries to cultivate a safe place for kids to be courageous, we want to create this safe people here where people can come and be courageously vulnerable because following Jesus is hard it is not an easy thing to truly follow after Jesus we we have to confess sin we have to open up to other people 
And we have to share our burdens. We share our lives with one another, and it, it's difficult to follow Jesus. And so for those of us that follow him, we want to create this safe places so others can come and also be courageously vulnerable. We want to hold the rope. We want to hold the rope. Well, the question this morning that we're going to wrestle with is, how can we become this safe people? Our, our church, our, our body becomes a safe people as we are transformed and understand what the will of God is. We become safe when we are transformed and understand what the will of God is. So Romans 12 is where we're going to be, but in order to understand Romans 12, we have to really understand Romans 1 through 11. And Romans 1 through 11, the Apostle Paul is the author of this, this letter, Romans, and in, in those chapters, he is explaining the mercy of God. He says that no one is righteous, and not even one, that all deserve the punishment for sin. But the righteousness of God can be attained by faith in Jesus, not by works of the law, that's the righteousness of man that comes from keeping a list of rules. We, that, that ship has sailed. We can't attain the righteousness of man, but the righteousness of God, the one that belongs to him, is given to us as we place our faith in Jesus. That is the gracious gift of God. That's Romans chapter 1 through 11, real short. Well, then Paul begins to shift his thinking in Romans chapter 12 and and what we get beginning in Romans chapter 12 is the practical implications of this gospel in Romans 1 through 11. The, the practical implications, the, the so what. So look with me, Romans chapter 12, look in verses 1 and 2. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, like Romans 1 through 11. Because of Romans through 11, I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual Worship, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we're going to become a safe people as we are transformed into the image of Christ and we understand what God's will is. What is God's will for your life? Well, in the context of Romans, it's the rest of Romans 12 and the rest of the book. So that's how you can read Romans, is Romans 1 through 11, the mercies of God, Romans 12 through the end, the implications of that mercy. What must we do? Now, I want to look just uh, real briefly at verses 9 through 13. That's where we're going to spend our attention this morning. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. And Paul, Paul wrote this. He said, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. I think these verses can be summarized by the phrase, love one another. Love one another. If, if we want Central to be a safe people, 
we must love one another. And in these verses, there are like six ways that we can live this out. Number one, love one another without hypocrisy. That's found in verse nine. Love one another without hypocrisy. Paul, Paul wrote in verse nine, let love be genuine. And that let love be genuine is like a heading for the next several verses. Let love be genuine. What is love? Love is desiring and striving for someone else's best even at personal cost or personal risk. Desiring and striving for someone else's best, even at personal risk. There's this old rabbi, I saw this video, and I think we've even mentioned it uh, before in here, but there's this old rabbi that's talking about the concept of love, and this, this word we, we use, we use it in a, a really weird way, because we'll say, like, I love my wife, and I love my kids, and I love my mom, and I love my dad, and I love my family, and I love my church, and I love hamburgers, and I love french fries, and I love pizza, and I love ice cream, and I love... We, we use this word in a, a weird way. What does that word even mean? And this, this rabbi says, it's like, uh, it's like you say, I love fish. Now, that, I would never say, I love fish. I do not love fish. I do not want to eat fish. Uh, but, but for example, someone might say, I love fish. And this rabbi would say, you don't love fish. You love what fish provides for you. You, you're, you don't want what's best for that fish. You want that fish to die so you can eat it. You, I mean, I don't want that. that. That fish can be fine. But you don't want what's best for that fish. You want what's best for you. That's not love. And what we're being called to in the scriptures is not this kind of fish love, but a different kind of love, a love that desires and strives for someone else's best. And Paul says, let love be genuine. Literally, let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be real, not fake. Not a flattering kind of love. You know what flattery is. The Bible warns against it. That's when you, when you say something nice to someone's face that you maybe don't even mean. And the reason you're saying that is really for your own benefit. That's hypocrisy. That's flattery. And there's another way that you love without hypocrisy. He finishes verse nine. He says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. We don't use that word abhor very often. The ESV chose that, that word to translate, but, but it means to hate. And we shouldn't soften it. It doesn't mean dislike or disapprove of or that's not the thing that I would choose, but, but it's fine. No, that, that word is the strongest word that Paul could choose for hate. Hate what is evil. Look how that word contrasts the word, uh, the word in the, the second part of that phrase. He says, hold fast to what is good or cling to what is good. So those are opposites. To hate and to cling to are opposites. He says, hate what is evil. Do not cling to what is evil, but hate it. Now, my wife, my wife hates roaches. She hates roaches. I'm not fond of them either. But, but that, that's a thing. Like I, She was in the first service, and I said that, and she said she got chill bumps when I said the word roaches. She hates them. Okay? Now, what if I, one day I discovered under our bed a tub with a lid on it, and I opened it up, and she had like a secret stash of roaches in there? Would I believe that my wife really hates roaches? 
No, she's clinging to them. She, she has some form of hypocrisy because she's actually clinging to them in secret. Do not cling to evil. Hate evil. And you know, sometimes when we say things like that, we should hate what is evil. Uh, as believers in Jesus, we, we sometimes think of the evil that's out there. Like out, out, out in our community, the evil that's out there. And look, look, we, we do need to think of the evil that's out there because there is objective truth. That, that's what we learn here. Hate, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. There is a good and there is an evil. And that is objective, not subjective. We, we can find what is good and evil because it's revealed in the scripture. God defines what is right and wrong. God defines it. It's found in the scriptures. It is not arbitrary because it emanates from his very person. This is what right and wrong is. Now, our society makes it a habit to hate what is good and to celebrate what is evil. And we understand that and we see that. So, so often when we read things like this in the scriptures, hate what is evil, we focus on the evil that's out there. But we conveniently are very slow to consider the evil that's in here. So we say things like, yeah, I struggle with it. Well, what you mean is, I don't like it, but I'm also unwilling to do what it takes to get rid of it. And really, we're harboring it, or we're trying to keep it manageable. I, I've got it under control. I've got a lid on the box. It's, it's okay. I'll just keep it under my bed. Or, or we excuse it. This, this is just who I am. This is how God made me. We laugh it off. But really, that, that personality trait actually destroys relationships and tears other people down. The evil that's in us. Paul doesn't say manage evil, he says hate it. If we want to be a loving people, we have to hate evil in all its forms, and we start with ourselves. Because the evil in your life will destroy you. The evil in your life aims to own you. I've, I've heard it said by a pastor, he said, sinning isn't like filling your stomach, it's like fueling a fire. You're not satisfying a desire, you're waking one up. That's why the scriptures say make no provision for the flesh, no quarter for the flesh. Do not harbor evil in your life so you can indulge it later when, when no one's looking. Hate it, kill it, get rid of it by the power of the Holy Spirit, as Paul argues in Romans chapter 8. See, it's a loving thing to hate what is evil and to cling to what is good. Number two, love one another like a family. Love one another like a family. That's verse 10. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. He uses the word Philadelphia there, the city of brotherly love. You know, throughout the New Testament, the number one way that the biblical authors refer to the people of God is with the, the words of brother and sister. They don't... They don't lean into like friend or fellow citizen or church member. They say brother and sister. As a matter of fact, the word brother, from, from Romans to Revelation, the word brother is used 133 times. Why? Because the church 
is a family. The biblical authors, the New Testament authors, want us to know the church is a family. So Paul says, show family affection to one another. We belong to one another. We are a family. The church is not a country club where you pay your dues and and get your expected amenities. And if you don't get exactly what you wanted, you you go find another country club somewhere else. The, the, The church isn't a service organization where you attend a meeting and you plan like your quarterly service project and then you go out in the community and do your service project. That's not what the church is. When you join a church, you're saying, this is my family. If you're you're a member here at Central, you're saying, this is my family. These are my brothers. These are my sisters. Those are my fathers. These are my mothers. This is my family. And when you get upset at your family, you don't pack up and go find a new one. No, you stay home and you work it out. You love one another with a brotherly Love And so what we do is we watch babies and we teach kids and we all show up and work together for VBS in the summer and we, we help out and we volunteer at youth camp and preteen camp and all these places and we eat together and we laugh together and we cry together and we visit the hospital when somebody's there and we care for one another when, when we're sick and we care for each other's families because we are one family. We love one another like family. Number three. Love one another by showing honor. The end of verse 10 says, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo. That sounds competitive to me, and I'm a pretty competitive person. I I love to compete. I love to win. When I play a game, I want to win. And So there are those who would say it's not whether you win or lose. It's how you play the game. Well, I play the game to win. Or, or, or they say, you know, it's not, it's not about winning or losing, it's about having fun. Well, you know, my response to that is, you know, it's fun. Winning is fun. <laughs> I, I want to win. Winning is fun. And this sounds competitive. Outdo one another. I, that sounds like a challenge to me. Outdo one another in showing honor. Not to show one another up, to show honor. To take the lead in honoring one another. In the way that we use our words to encourage and build up and not tear down and create insecurity with our words. And we build up. And, and for some of us, this showing honor can be particularly difficult. And I was encouraged by one pastor commenting on this passage. He said, well, this is difficult uh, for you. There's, there's two things I want you to do. The first one is I want you to pray for others to be more honored and more blessed than you are. And you're thinking, okay, I can do that. I can, I can pray that prayer. And then he said, okay, then the second part, second thing I want you to do is I want you to pray that you would be happy about it. And that, <laughs> that's where the challenge is, isn't it? Well, we want to become a safe place. And we will become a safe place as we become a people who honor up, down, and all around. Number four, love one another with service. Love one another with service. I think in verse 11, there are three phrases that I think are kind of all connected. He says, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. I think those three things are connected. Do not be slothful in zeal means do not be lazy in your eagerness. Do not be lazy in your eagerness. 
Well, how are you not going to be lazy in eagerness? Where does eagerness come from? It's the second thing there. He says, be fervent in spirit. Literally, in spirit, boiling. Now, it's a little, the, the words here are a little ambiguous. Does he mean like the spirit of man, the spirit of a person, the inward thoughts of a person, that spirit of man? Or does he mean the Holy Spirit? Could he mean that? And actually, there's a great case to be made for both of them, which is why I kind of think it's ambiguous on purpose. It's actually both, that we would have a passion that comes from our inner self. We would have this passion to be eager, and that eagerness and that passion comes from being full of the Holy Spirit. I think both things are meant here. So he says to be passionate and eager to do what? Well, that's the third phrase verse 11. Serve the Lord. One way we demonstrate our love for one another is how we serve the Lord. We reject laziness, but with eagerness and with passion, we serve the Lord. You know, to serve means to subject your will and your desires and your preferences to another person. So your time, your talent, your treasure, your preferences, you're submitting to someone else. So Paul here is urging the Roman church, he says, serve the Lord. Now, the word the Lord implies service and submission. We use that word the Lord in more of a religious context, and so it's kind of lost some of its meaning. Actually, that, that's a word, it just means boss. It, it means master. So if you're going to call Jesus Lord, he's the boss. Of course I'm going to serve the Lord with passion and with eagerness. Now, the difficult thing about serving the Lord is actually we would rather serve ourselves. With passion and with eagerness, we love to serve ourselves. And it's nice when what we want matches up with what God wants. That's nice. And sometimes... What we want isn't a bad thing, it's actually a good thing. But the question is, who am I serving? Am I serving myself, or am I serving the Lord? Martin Luther, the reformer, once commented on this passage. He said, people can be very busy in what they consider as a good work, but not ready to do whatever God wills, unless they can choose what it shall be. In other words, I'll serve the Lord as long as it's convenient for me. Can I tell you something? That's not service. That, that's not service. And if that's your attitude, I'll serve you, Lord, but I'll wait till it's convenient and on my terms, then I wonder, do you really mean that he's your Lord, boss, master? What are some examples of serving the Lord? You can serve the Lord in the church. You can serve the Lord outside the church. Serving the Lord doesn't mean going to ministry. It doesn't mean everybody pack up and go to seminary. That's not what that means. You can serve the Lord in the church. You can serve the Lord outside the church. You can serve the Lord outside the church in the way that you serve other people. That's why Jesus said, as you have done to the least of these, you've done to me. You are serving the Lord when you serve others. When you look for somebody who needs mercy and you meet their need, you are serving the Lord. You can serve the Lord inside the church as well. We have ministry opportunity, ways to serve the Lord right now. 
And we always, so we always need help in preschool, always. That we, we have so many little ones uh, just brimming over the top. We always need people to volunteer preschool, all hours, 8.30, 9.45, 11 o'clock. We need volunteers for preschool. But it's not just like next generation ministry that needs volunteers. We, we also, we have a groups ministry and we need new groups. And the only way to start new adult groups is to have new adult leaders. And we need people to serve the Lord with eagerness, with passion, by leading a group. And I want to highlight some people who have heeded this call to serve the Lord. There's a new group. We want to celebrate. There's a new group that's starting after Easter. There's a brand new group. Of the, uh, we've been saying over the last you know, month and a half, I think we've said two, three times, we're looking for group leaders. Well, these folks have heeded the call. Mark and Terry Birchfield are starting a new group for uh, people age 60 and up. So if you're looking for a new group, a place to plug in, they're starting after Easter. You can find more information out at the table on that. Um, but that's, that's, a, that's a picture of somebody among us with eagerness and with passion. They're choosing to serve the Lord. Number five, love one another with perseverance. Verse 12. Once again, three Phrases that I think go together, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. I think those three things go together. They can be summarized with the word perseverance. We love one another when we persevere, when we don't give in to despair. Now, if you think about the original audience of this letter, it would have been first century Christians living in Rome, and they had reason to despair. You know, the Roman government had come against them, maybe not the Roman Empire globally attacking Christians, that, that's a little later in the historical timeline, but, but locally, local per- persecution from local governments and from their community, that their livelihood, their, their lives were at stake because of their faith in Jesus. And their lives would have been a whole lot easier if they would quit on Jesus and just kind of go along with the crowd. And yet they stood firm and they persevered. And Paul is, is encouraging them here, persevere. In the middle of World War II, Winston Churchill is the prime minister of the United Kingdom. And he had the opportunity to give a speech to some boys who had graduated from a school that he had attended. It was a commencement address. It was in the middle of World War II, the German air attack was relentless, the outcome of the war uh, was in doubt. It was uncertain, and, and Churchill spoke to these boys at, commitment, at, at commencement, but his, his speech was to them, but it was really to the whole nation, right? And in this speech, he famously said, this is the lesson, never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 in nothing, great or small, small large, or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Never yield to the overwhelming might of the enemy. Now, for the people of the first century here, they, their enemy was this mighty Roman Empire. They had conquered the known world. They were too mighty. As we read this, we we need to come to understand that, yeah, the Romans were mighty, but the people of God have always struggled against a people who are too mighty for them. Whether it's the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Romans, the message is persevere. God is in control. 
He will make all things new. He will right every wrong. Just as God rescued Israel from the Egyptians and they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground, and just as God brought back the people of Israel who were exiled into Babylon and he brought them back to the promised land, so God will help us through the things we're struggling with in our circumstances. He will walk us through on our way to the promised land. He will do it. And so Paul here says, rejoice in hope. Rejoice that you have a hope. God will keep his promises. Things look bleak. Yeah, they look bleak, but he's in control, and victory always comes at the end. And then he says, be patient in tribulation. In your trouble, do not give up. Be patient. Look, we are promised victory, but we aren't promised victory now. And we aren't promised victory maybe even in our lifetime. But what we are promised is that one day the Lord Jesus will return and he's going to make everything that's sad come untrue. And we patiently wait on the Lord to come through. We wait. We wait on the Lord. We're patient in tribulation. Well, how can we rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation? How can that happen? It's hard. How how can that happen? Well, the the third part of that verse, it, it requires constancy in prayer. That we would make everything a matter of prayer, not an academic exercise. A matter of prayer. The things that are causing you anxiety right now, make those things a matter of prayer, not worry. What if instead of trying to scheme and plan and think through all the what if contingencies and if this happens, then we'll do this, but what if this happens, then we'll, what if instead of all of that, What if you just took it to the Lord in prayer? Maybe you'd find joy and hope and peace that surpasses understanding. Number six, love one another practically. He says there in verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. You see, love is not a sentiment. Love is desiring and striving after the best for someone else, even at our own personal cost. That's what love is. We're gonna love one another. It meets real needs. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Share in the needs of the saints. Because we share with one another, we enter into one another's needs, whatever they may be. It might be financial, and that's probably what he's referring to, but it might might be other things. Another kind of need, we share in that need. Because we're a family. If one part of the body is in need, the the whole body is in need. Now, we don't have to be the savior for everyone all the time. That's not what this means. But it does mean that we share in the legitimate need of our brothers and our sisters. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And then he says, seek to show hospitality. Now let's break that down. Seek to show hospitality. Hospitality. The word hospitality in Greek, that, that word uh, breaks down to kind of two parts, and, and it means love of stranger. Love of stranger. Earlier he said, love one another like your brothers. And here he says, we'll also love strangers. Hospitality in Paul's day was about Christian missionaries. Believers from, from all over the world, they would travel to different cities and to share the gospel. And they might show up in your town and they didn't have hotels, they didn't have 
restaurants and those kinds of things. They needed a place to stay. They needed somebody to host them. And Paul's saying if Christian missionaries show up in your town, host them in your home. Put them up. Take care of their needs. They're sharing the gospel. Show this kind of hospitality. So that's hospitality, love of stranger. The other part of that phrase is seek to show. In the original language, that's one word, and that word means pursue. And it's really interesting. Uh, Verse 14 says, bless those who persecute you. You know, to persecute someone, you're going after them. Like Nothing else uh, will do. All I want is to go after that person, persecute. It's the same word. Seek to show hospitality and those who persecute you. It's the same word, to pursue, to go after it, to make a plan, to go out of your way, even if it's difficult. Nothing else will do than to show love of stranger. Nothing else will do. I think the principle that we can take from this is to use our homes and our lives to practice gospel-advancing hospitality. You know, we don't necessarily have a whole lot of Christian missionaries showing up in our town wanting to stay in our homes. But I think the the principle from this text is to refuse to let your home or your time or your privacy become an idol in your life. Yeah, you, you you need a moment to yourself. I'm with you. I need a moment to myself too. But we can't let our home or our time or our privacy become an idol, but rather use it to advance the gospel in whatever way we can come up with to welcome others into our homes, welcome others into our lives. I think that speaks to us as we live our lives with our families out there, but, but I also think that it speaks to us as a church. Look, we have a hospitality ministry. We have a love of stranger ministry here at church because we love new people. We, we design our website with new people in mind. We are starting new groups. I said earlier, we've got to start new groups. Why? Just make the ones we have bigger. No, we start new groups because you guys do a really great job of doing what we ask and becoming better together and becoming this tight-knit community. When somebody new comes, it's a little weird. It's hard to plug into something that's so tight-knit. So we're constantly wanting to start new groups so new people can form their tight-knit community. So we've got to start new groups, and we're, we're about that mission, and we are pursuing after that to start new groups because we have a love of stranger. We're trying to be hospitable. Look, as a church, we have to be more than friendly. We have to be welcoming. More than friendly, we have to be welcoming. Friendly is fine. Welcoming is Christ-like. Friendly is a smile. Welcoming is an invitation. We have flyers back there to invite people to Easter. Easter's coming fast. And we have flyers back there. You can grab one, two, three. Find somebody to invite. Come to Easter at my church, and I'd love you to sit with me. That is is welcoming. Friendly is, I'm glad you're here. Welcoming is, I'm glad you're here. Would you like to sit with me? We've got to be both friendly and welcoming if we want to be a safe place. So love without hypocrisy. Love love one another like a family. Love one another by showing honor. Love one another with service. Love one another with perseverance. And love one another practically. God has been merciful to us. 
No one is righteous, not even one. All of us deserve punishment for sin. But God has graciously given his son Jesus to us. By faith, we can take hold of the righteousness of God. Not a righteousness of man that's earned by keeping a list of rules, but a righteousness that becomes ours through faith. And the implications of that. We've got to seek out what God's will is and do it. And a great example of God's will is what we just looked at in Romans 12, 9 through 13. One of the things that's important to us as a church is to create safe places. Yes, safe physical places. That is a high priority to us. We want to be a physical place. We want to have these programs that you want to come to. But it's not just about physical places. We have people that are coming to our church, members and non-members. People are coming with a variety of experiences, hurts, expectations, sinful habits, needs. We have people that are coming to our church that are looking, is this a church that I can belong to? And we have people that are coming here that, that are looking for Jesus. Or they're looking for some kind of help. And we want to create a safe place for that. But here's the thing. I want you to hear me. Jesus is safe because we can come to him and he is forgiving and kind. and He will receive us. But at the same time, Jesus isn't safe. He's not safe. He's going to come after your idols. He's going to call you to greater faith. He's going to call you to attempt great things for God. Jesus says unsafe things like take up your cross and follow me. So it takes courage to surrender to Jesus. So so here's the deal. The reason why we want to create safe places, we want to create a place for people to be courageously vulnerable. As a church, we want to be the people, the Zephyr staffers at the bottom of the ropes course, holding on to the rope. I've got you. Yes, that looks unsafe, but I want you to experience all that God has for you. And so we, we cheer them on when they take a step of progress, and we catch them when they fall. They bring the courage, and we bring the safe place. 